this isn't just a bunch of poor schmucks doing their best to try to get a watch where they can't afford new. That was kind of the mentality for a long time. Like, oh, you have to buy used. They didn't appreciate that consumers like buying used in a lot of ways. Not only do you enjoy not having to spend full retail on basically the same thing, oftentimes that's the only way of getting watches. If you can't buy it new, then of course you have to get it used if you want something specific. So there is a permanence to this sort of pre-owned industry that I think the official watch industry is now slowly accepting, even though it's not a surprise to any of us. This week on a blog to watch weekly, Cam from the Tribe Watches podcast guest hosts with Rick, Ariel and David. The team discussed the selling of pre-owned watches in the heart of Geneva, a G-Shock restoration program, and new watches from Omega, Shinola, Odlons, and more. Enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to this week's e-blog to watch weekly. There are four of us in our respective studios this week, the usual suspects of Ariel and David, and we are joined by Cam from the Try Watches podcast. How are you, Cameron? Uh, we have had a little bit of an offline conversation about me never speaking to you again. We'll maybe <laughs> delve into that shortly. But are you well? Very well. Thank you, Rick. No, it's a pleasure to be on. I always enjoy listening to you guys, so uh, happy to be a part of the conversation. This is great. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Now, m- much like those who are familiar with the TV show Grand Designs, there does appear to be a habit that every time I speak to Cameron, uh, there ends up being another baby dropping. So this will be the last time we speak because due to the cost of living crisis, Cameron doesn't want child number four and is, is blaming me for it. And if I end up with child number four, it's going to be really going to put a dent in my watch uh, budget. It just, it's just, <laughs> it's just a very negative. It's already having the the second one already had already had an impact. I know it was like one, two, and three was fine, but you broke it for like yeah, exactly exactly that's <laughs> amazing if four does come on you'll obviously have to you know name them after me that'll be the first baby naming <laughs> from a book to watch weekly <laughs> i will i will run that by my wife and see what she thinks yeah. i'm gonna second that you're gonna have to do that it's official now yeah we'll, we'll let you choose david or ariel as well but i see one of the three of us fair enough fair enough I bags he writes though. <laughs> I can appreciate that. Well, you you were the one that jinxed me on the last one, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's like you just spread the blame for the next ones. So, exactly. Ariel, how are you? What have you been up to? I'm very well. I've been here planning my next few trips uh, to Europe. Prior to the end of 2022, there's an interesting show that I'm probably going to go to in Geneva called Reluxury. And I don't know if people know about this show so far, but it's going to be the first time I know of where used watches and other things like jewelry and handbags are going to be sold in Geneva at the President Wilson. So like the thing that the Swiss watch industry was the most afraid of, which is pre-owned in Geneva, is now coming to Geneva. And not just that, but run and organized by the person who formerly ran SIHH, which would would have been like the, the enemy show to this concept. So this is going to be in November, probably going to be there. And I'm going to be really thrilled to see, you know, all the big brands, Richard Mille, all that under the auspices of let's get excited about pre-owned. So I, I keep thinking about how that's going to pan out. This is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> the Antichrist is coming to Geneva. The evil empire. We need to change the theme tune for the show that covers it to something like the, the, the whatever the, the tune is called from The Empire Strikes Back. Darth Vader march. Because <laughs> if anybody can make buying used watches unfun, it's the Swiss, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
it will be the least red bar meetup type watch event <laughs> that anyone has ever experienced in terms of folk trying on each other's watches and having a general look around. Let's look at the psychology behind it. And this tends to be how it is with a lot of industries. Other people will test it out, validate it, make money from it. And then the Swiss, after having sort of shunned it and made fun of it and disgraced it for long enough, are like, wait a minute, are people making money and we're not making money? We should be making that money. So thank you for that good idea. Now we're going to try to do it. And that's I understand that so far. But once they do it the Swiss way, it ends up not being as successful much of the time. And that's, I think, where some of the comedy comes in. So it's not like Apple. It's it's the opposite of Apple. So because Apple will do that and take a product that's been around for a while and then actually make money on it on top of that, whereas the Swiss like to stretch it out. <laughs> a- Apple will will, you know, They'll engineer it for the mainstream. Apple will take something and they'll simplify it and they'll try to like find the good stuff. And I agree with you. That that is something that they've done often. The Swiss don't come at it as though like, okay, people want this. Now we're gonna put our, you know, our great thought and effort into it. Well, it could be that once in a while, but usually it's like, oh, there's a market for this now. Well, the market has shown that it's not it's 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 non-risky enough for us to involve ourselves, and now we're going to try to extract profit and margin. So it's more like this is proven, so let's make money from it, as opposed to people want this, let's improve it. So what the Japanese are to design the Swiss art of money. So when they see somebody making money, they're going, let's let's us make money, but they'll remove all the fun at the same time. Yeah, that's that's and 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 I don't mean it in a sort of derogatory way, although it's easy to laugh about it. It just it falls into. An, an irony because you see them flipping. Once they feel like there's money to be made, they're fine. But when they thought that Prion took money away from them, it was the enemy. It was the devil. Now that they feel that they can bank in a little bit, they're like, hmm, let's explore this a little bit. And, you know, David knows this, like only comedy is going to ensue because a lot of the things about their culture, which make them great at what they do, make them really bad at the sort of like psychology behind selling pre-owned, which for me, a lot of it is finding the, the amount that the market will bear. They tend to be much more ambitious about what they can get away with when it comes to pricing. Yeah, I was just waiting to hear the word value. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a value proposition, David. Yeah, uh, yeah. Geneva is the the world's the global capital of value. Anyway, so I think that's the perfect <laughs> place to <laughs> to host this event. Uh, no, it, it, <laughs> I, I agree with that. Uh, everything that's already said, obviously. Uh, yeah, I look forward to it. Hopefully, I'll I'll be able to take part and and uh, see you there, Aria. Yeah, so that's been on my mind. And before that, I'm planning for my very exciting adventure to Sicily with Jacob and company for the 50th anniversary of The Godfather. I don't know exactly <laughs> what we're going to do. Hopefully, I'm not going to be shot up with a bunch of machine guns. Have you checked that the ticket is returned, yeah? So far, it seems on the level, but y- you never know. I guess what I'm most interested is, how do they follow up with the opera, uh, The Godfather Watch, which you might remember has a multi-axis tourbillon, a minute repeater, I believe, and the music box that plays... The theme, it has a piano and a small miniature of Don Corleone in it. So how do they, how do you, where do you go from there? They make it in titanium. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Make it in bullet casings. I mean, remember that obviously The Godfather was followed by The Godfather 2, was then followed by The Godfather 3. It notionally went downhill after each. (laughs) 
So what you're saying is there's more anniversaries to look forward to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and we all know that the watch industry loves a good anniversary. I, I would just be careful of going near any toll booths. That would be my uh, word of advice. Exactly, Don't cross any exactly. bridges. Don't yeah. get a toll booth. And if you hear the neighing of horses in distress then turn around and go the other way. So many jokes we can have about this. Yeah, you don't, you don't own a racehorse, do you, Ariel? No? <laughs> they might get me one only to prove a point later on. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, David, not to put too fine a point on my brief uh, segue reference to Japanese design, but we have a show coming up which is going to be a special from a blog to watch weekly. David, why don't you give us a wee a wee trail on what the good listeners have got to look forward to? That's right. So uh, Rick and I uh, caught up in Geneva, of all places, to record a number of special episodes for this little podcast. And we sat down with prominent faces of the watch industry. And one of those were Fabrizio Buonamassa, who's the head of design of Bulgari Watches. And we had a fantastic discussion on all kinds of things Bulgari, including the Italian luxury brand's collaboration, frequent collaboration, I should say, with Japanese designers and architects and, and so on. And we've already discussed the Sejima Limited Edition in a previous podcast, and we go into greater details with that. So if you want to hear, you know, uh, just everything you need to know about design from one of the leading guys in the industry, then I think you, sh- you should definitely not miss this one. Sounds exciting. It was just awesome to sit and spend some time in his presence. It really did feel like you were in the presence of kings. <laughs> if that's not too... That's, it's appropriate. A suitable time has passed to be talking about being in the presence of kings, I feel, for somebody from Britain. <laughs> and Canada, are you standing up, Cameron? Always. Always good. <laughs> Tune in next week sometime. This episode of uh, Bulgaria will drop. Do check that out. Let's talk about some articles at blogtowatch.com. So this is an article basically in response to a lot of other articles which have been talking about a decrease in the average price point of some of the hyped up watches, especially on the pre-owned market. For several years now, it has been a very interesting phenomenon where a lot of pre-owned watches and new ones for that matter have been going for well over list price. Watches have been behaving a little bit like a financial asset and not quite like a, a fashion item that you buy and wear and that depreciates. And it's not all watches, but it's been quite a lot of them. And then over the last several months related to uh, the war in Ukraine, inflation, increase of interest rates, and a bunch of other predictable things that would decrease the value of alternative assets, once that happened, the average price point for a lot of these hyped up watches was falling, uh, in some instances quite a bit. In China, there was reports of averages from something like 40 to 70%. And again, these are reductions from inflated aftermarket prices in a lot of instances, you know, prices well beyond what the standard market will bear. And there was a lot of financial publications covering this, some big ones as well. So people were sending me articles. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? So as is often the case, I said, you know what, let me comment about this for everyone. I'm not the only one seeing these articles. I'm not the only one who is hearing about this. And I was afraid that the general public might believe that there is a larger wholesale trend in the reduction of prices of watches, which is not true. This is a small subset of hyped watches, whereas, you know, inflated prices are going down. And that was really important for me to clarify because we don't want people to think that there is issues in the luxury industry during great times of uncertainty. No, no, it has to be doing great. In fact, the watch industry is doing quite well in a lot of areas. And so I wanted to clarify what this news meant, because if you didn't look into it, you could be under the belief that the value of watches was going down. And that's not exactly true. So that's more or less what I was trying to discuss in that in that essay. 
So how do you think this rolls into what we just touched on before, which is the used market that they're bringing them home to be resold in Geneva? How does this tie in together? It's a good question. Now, let's let's examine sort of the pre-owned market because it's more than just, I want to make money selling a used watch to someone. It's also the business of restoring and servicing relatively new watches that need that or older watches that need restoration. That is actually a big part of it because that is a big moneymaker and could be a big business. And a lot of brands are, are underdeveloped in that. And we actually have content that we're talking about right now on a blog to watch articles about how brands are doing this in-house. Longines, for example, has a whole new arm of its business, which is just there to, to service and restore any old Longines. That's a new part of their business. That's another element of it, as well as the purchase of these goods. So retailers now, more often than not, will take in pre-owned watches, either because they want to sell a new watch to that customer or because they want to take that watch and resell it or sell it to a reseller, a distributor of sorts or something like that. So there's a lot of things that actually go in to sort of this pre-owned market above and beyond. Is a consumer going to buy an old watch versus a new watch? What I think the pre-owned market has done quite successfully is prove to the Swiss watch industry that this isn't just a bunch of poor schmucks doing their best to try to get a watch where they can't afford new. That was kind of the mentality for a long time. Like, oh, you have to buy used. They didn't appreciate that consumers, especially men buying watches, like buying used in a lot of ways. Not only is it, you know, do you enjoy not having to spend, you know, full retail on basically the same thing, but oftentimes that's the only way of getting watches. If you can't buy it new, then of course you have to buy, get it used if you want something specific. So there is a permanence to this sort of pre-owned industry that I think the official watch industry is now slowly accepting, even though it's not a surprise to any of us. And they are trying to figure out, you know, again, as we said earlier, how do they put their fingers in the pot and, and make some money here? They're they're actually quite upset. Oh, there's all these little third parties out there making money, selling the watches that we made at one point, and, and they are looking to sort of uh, get the way in. So it, it is a multifaceted industry. It is here to stay, but I don't think that markedly inflated prices above what, you know, average collectors want to spend that that have nothing to do with actual inventory out there, artificially created thing, hyped watches. I don't think that that should have as big of a role because it creates a lower confidence in pricing and a lower uh, happiness quotient. When you buy a watch at a good value, you're happy and you tend to want to buy another one later. When the last watch you bought wasn't a good value and it was a pain in the ass and it wasn't a fun process, chances are you're going to be less excited about buying your next watch. So those are things which are really important to me. Come with me a journey into the future. So 10 years from now, the Swiss have just woken up, we think, to the fact that there's money to be made. 10 years from now, does the market still have Chrono24 and a Watchbox and an eBay as the center hubs for retailing used watches? Or have the brands with the power they have to control the watches, with the power they have to swap them for new ones, with the power they have to service them quickly and give them their own uh, authenticity guarantee, much like eBay's. Does the market look differently? Has it all gone in-house? It's possible. Anything's possible. But here's the way I'll answer it. I speak to a lot of the people that do this business, that buy the watches and resell them or involve the pre-owned and things like that. And I ask them sometimes... Are you worried about competition from the brands themselves? Does it bother you that brands are doing this directly? And my suspicion was a lot of them are going to be like, yep, game's over for me. But a lot of them are like, yeah, I'm not worried at all. Or like, good luck, let them try. 
I think the reality <laughs> is that this is something which has a lot of complexities that's very, very nuanced, as is retail, as is marketing. And and I've seen just in my relatively limited 15 years in the watch industry, them frequently trying to bite more than they can chew and then regretting it. And and, and we've seen it yeah. from trying to go to a direct-to-consumer model, which has been okay for some, but very few, trying to uh, avoid you know advertising and, 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 uh, or, or trying to make marketing content themselves versus using professionals, trying to bypass magazines, trying to take over distribution and do it themselves, of course, trying to take over manufacturing. There's been all these things that they've tried to do with their limited teams and resources that really require a much larger investment, team, set of resources, level of sophistication. So this is yet another thing that they're going to trial to see if they can do. And so most of the people who are involved right now, the professionals in pre-owned, whether it's sort of a mom and pop that, you know, buys used watches and tries to think about what people want later and writes, you know, nice little posts or an eBay. Uh, these types of specialists are probably going to be in the best. I mean, we look at it in the car world. There was a period of time, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, where the car companies were just so freaking excited about certified pre-owned. People are only going to buy pre-owned cars from us. Did that happen? Yes, in some instances, you buy a pre-owned car from the dealer, but more often than not, people are still relying on this whole litany of third-party services. They're just getting more and more nuanced and more and more complex and more and more detached from the companies that actually make the product. So I hope that's a good answer. Cameron, your experience of used watch purchases, any good stories? Is it something you dip into on a regular basis or are you strictly buy it new with a warranty kind of guy? Me personally, I've always been uh, uh, buy it new with a warranty. Uh, it's kind of been my realm. I've dipped into just, just through my uncle and stuff like that. I've, I've gotten a couple of uh, vintage pieces and stuff and uh, that sort of thing. Have you still got his Panerai? <laughs> no, no. He's uh, he, he managed to come down and uh, uh, take his Panerai back uh, and his Bell and Ross for that matter. <laughs> the thing I find interesting about this, I'm always curious about who the actual end user is on some of these ones because it gets to a point with obviously with with the very the very select few like you talk about your your Steel Daytonas, your Patek Nautilus, which is one I still don't I still don't quite understand why the the popularity behind it. It's a it's a nice watch, but the the fact that these things are going for upwards of six figures, I always feel as though it seems to be like a lot of dealer to dealer moving of these pieces and there's it, it always because it like like ariel was mentioning it's like i mean it's not as though it's, it's like a it's like a false scarcity in a lot of cases with these pieces because you you go on to these watch uh websites at chrome 24 ebay less so Watchbox, watch finder i find they they're they're a bit more curated when it comes to what they release and uh what's get at what gets advertised but you do kind of wonder who in the end is is dropping $120,000 on a on a three-hand Nautilus that's got a movement that still doesn't hack. It feels as though it, it's just a and, – and, and it becomes just like a commodity where just it, it seems to be – everybody seems to think they'll continue to go up and up and up um, when until, of course, it doesn't and the bottom falls out of the market and, and then the guy left with uh, 30 of them in the bank safe uh, is stuck with them until, until there's another circulation around it. My – Knowledge within the actual behind the scenes of all of this, I mean, it's it's purely specu speculative on my part. But to be perfectly honest, I mean, it's one of the things that um, we complain about all the time. I mean, it's it becomes it always comes up a sore, sore subject, and just because looking at it solely from an end user and like again, what Ariel was saying is that these are these are supposed to be an enjoyable object. I don't view watches as a commodity. I I buy pieces that I like, and I. 
and I like to wear them. And, and, and when you start getting into speculation and these things start increasing in value to that level, all of a sudden you have other problems that come into play like theft and so on and so forth. So I would like to see it go back to simpler times back when I started getting into this 10, 15 years ago. But I mean, the Pandora's box is open where I mean, we are where we are now. Yeah. David, is there anything noticeably different about the U sector in your side of the world in comparison to, say, the States or Australasia or Hong Kong? Is there a different attitude in kind of Central Europe than there is, or is everybody just on the same bandwagon? Um, so much so that it's, it's different even here in Hungary than in Austria or Germany. So this is totally a microcosm of of, uh, of pre-owned watches here. So uh, there are very few Facebook groups with like literally tens of thousands of people in them where most of the buying and selling is happening. And uh, watches are often advertised. And I, I find these statements to be true whenever I check them at the lowest price anywhere in Europe, in the European Union, at least. Don't rub it in that we're not in the European Union anymore. No, it's, <laughs> but it's true. You, you just got to come over here with, 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 with some cash to spend and just uh, get something nice for you. But still, I'm just saying that this, this is totally, even in the world of the internet where everything is, is, is connected and there's a free flow of products within the European Union, at least theoretically, uh, in practice, there, there can be major, huge differences in, in the thousands, several thousands of euros. You know, so that can totally happen. And uh, it's strange because it's so difficult to research, right? Because if everybody here just listed their stuff on Chrono24, they would just try and get a higher price. But because everything, or almost everything is at a lower price, that keeps the trade value and all of these things down a little bit. Okay, so we move from the sublime to the slightly ridiculous, which is we're talking about used watch prices in the tens of thousands still, but dropping, and then Casio come along and say, yeah, while you're thinking about all of this really expensive luxury watches for tens of thousands of dollars, why don't you also consider sending us in your couple of hundred dollar G-Shock and we'll completely refurbish it for you? And I'm thinking, has the world finally tipped over the edge? I'm going to speak last because I know the most about it. So I'm going to hear <laughs> everyone else says, and then I'm going to tell you what Cassio has to say. Go on then. Uh, Cameron, give us your instant reaction to this story. Well, the instant reaction was I, I, I kind of chuckled to myself because my my first reaction is, okay, I'm going to send this away and get spend $100, which I could just buy a brand new G-Shock for $100. But then I did read the article um, that spoke about this, and I thought it was really interesting. The fact that it's it's a limited offer for the next couple of months, and it's the fact that it's a select group of Casio G Shocks. So because it, it's the five thousand DW and the fifty two hundred, or and even the old fifty six hundreds, and I kind of went, oh, okay, so. If you're thinking about – if you've got an old G-Shock kicking around, you kind of go, geez, I wish I just, they'd just make this one again and you wanted to get it replaced and restored and they swap the band out and everything like that. You now have the opportunity if it's something that you can't buy anymore. You know what? If for 100 bucks to go and do that, you know what? You, you, you're going to spend the same money getting a brand new one and you might get something that has some, some level of sentimental attachment to it. I think the premise is interesting. But yeah, initial reaction to, to restore vintage G-Shock. Uh, okay, Swatch is going to do it next. <laughs> I just wonder how you know. Like, how do you know that they restored it rather than just swapped it for you won't new old stock? The picture of the show is like 
looks like a brand new G-Shock. <laughs> a, dirty, a dirty G-Shock and a, a new one. And the funny thing is, is that you know that because G-Shocks are a mass-produced product, and I know this from having one stolen, that there is no individual serial number attached to them at all. They've they, you know, The stamp on the back of them is just simply the movement number and uh, and the model number. So um, so you you wouldn't know unless, unless there's some distinguishing mark that they can't get rid of when they do the restoration. I wish I had an ancient G-Shock that I could send in just to try this out and see what they sent me back. Uh, David, you got any good G-Shocks you're considering paying an additional $100 to get them back the way they once were? Yeah, I think the, the question here is whether this is a service or a restoration in the sense that if you have one that's broken and you want to make it work again, or if you have something that's beaten up and you want to make it look new again, that, those are two different things. But either way, I'm happy that this service exists in the sense that, you know, it's it's a company taking care of its of its heritage, right? I mean, we're talking about 40-year-old watches here and th- that are virtually incomparable to anything else. They are unparalleled. And if we let these 40-year-old watches just die and and not be around, then, you know, the, uh, that history is gone. And G-Shock and Casio has produced a number of amazing editions and amazing watches uh, at the early stages of the G-Shock. And I feel like, yes, there totally should be more of them around and we should take care of this and not let this go. So I applaud them for doing this, even though uh, the first impact of the news sounds weird. I think this is this is just a great move. I think I am going to have to go and have a look on eBay and see if I can buy an old beaten up broken one and send it in for a hundred bucks and just experiment with the service and see how it comes back. We do some photos before and after. So then Ariel, tell us where we're all wrong. It's not a matter of being right or wrong, but I think the first thing I want to say is how limited this is. This isn't any old G-Shock. This is literally a list of like four or six models that you have to have one of these. It only works if you had one of these and then you send in, I guess, the one you have and you know, your theories about what do they do with it? Well, yeah, if it's like a, a a new case, they just swap out the old case and put the new one on there. And you go back to the question of, you know, if, if it's a hammer and you replace the handle and the head, is it the same hammer as you had before? You know, you can have a lot of philosophical discussion about this. But the bottom line is like the case is broken. The screen is broken. It's scratched up. They're not going to restore it. They're just going to replace it, which is basically what people want. Will they keep as much of the original components as possible? Yes. And the thing costs a flat fee of $100. So it's not too expensive. It's basically like buying a new one of your old one with a little bit more ceremony around it and maybe some fun stuff from Casio. It's an experiment, but I think what's more important is it's sort of Casio getting in on the whole restoration vintage thing. It's very tongue-in-cheek and... I almost wonder if this is a, an attempt at humor. It's a serious program, and it would never be anything <laughs> yeah. but a serious program if it was a Japanese initiative. But I, I continue to ask myself, are they kind of chuckling? Are they laughing? I don't claim to very well understand Japanese humor. I, I love Japanese culture, but I, I just don't think that I perfectly understand their humor. So it might be part of this, or they might be like, no, this is extremely serious. I, I just I don't know. I really have no idea. So I googled the DW5000C and the first one that popped up on eBay is going for £1,700. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that there's a bargain to be had by buying knackered ones off of eBay and sending them in for 100 bucks. There doesn't appear to be much of a knackered market for these watches on eBay or anywhere else from what I can see. But yeah, if you've got one of these and you choose to send it in, please, please get in touch 
podcast at a blog to watch.com. I'd love to speak to you. Love to find out how it goes. Th- there's one more yeah. funny thing. I got to tell you the other funny thing. So before I realized that this only worked on a small number of watches, I was like, oh, this is great. I'll, I'll grab the G-Shock that I wore in high school uh-huh. and I'll go through the process. So like, oh, well, it's only these ones right now. I was like, okay. And they're like, well, how about we send you a broken one and then you send it in and then you see how it goes. I'm like, let me get this straight. <laughs> you want to send me some some random broken watch that somebody broke or maybe you had a fun time breaking yourself that I'm supposed to pretend was mine that I have emotional attachment to and that I now want to restore, quote unquote, for $100. And they were willing to do that. And I was like, oh. I was charmed by it, but I just thought it was like... <laughs> we got to do that. It's performance art at that point. I like everything about this. But this is why we love Casio. This is why we absolutely adore Casio. Well, the funny thing is Casio in the background just has the duplicate of all the watches. It's just waiting for us to send it. And no matter what it is, <laughs> they just send us the duplicate. <laughs> they just found an old stock of like 100,000 G-Shocks from 1983. And they're like, oh, what do we do with this? Oh, I know. Cool. Well, go and check out that article at ablogtowatch.com. It is very much fun. Okay, a bit of last week's show this week. And yes, of course we did. And I don't know if he knows this. He may not have looked. But of course we registered at ABTW David without the underscore. So if you want to go and check out <laughs> <What>? David's... David's <laughs> if, you, if you want to go and check out David's oh uh, new A Blog to Watch Weekly fan account, there is two people following it just now. One is the person that does the voiceovers for the show, that's Christy, and the other is me. We've yet to find a suitable photograph for the account. So if you've got a suitable stupid photograph of David you want to send us that we can put on it, then yeah. We now have David's Uh, competitor account uh, that you can find at ABTW David. I'm I'm charmed. I'm touched, I should say. Thank you. <laughs> so there you go. And uh, we also got a note in last week thanking us from uh, Sebastian, who who is like the invisible hand that seems to control all watch podcasts. His, his name is often mentioned elsewhere, Fifth Wrist, other places. So but Sebastian's really the guy pulling all the strings. Sebastian's based in Sweden and did message in about having learned a new word, discombobulated. Okay, so we hinted at this last week, and Ariel, I suspect, had a little bit of inside knowledge when uh, thinking that what Omega were about to release maybe of the digital variety, and yes, another Speedmaster has arrived, but it's a Speedmaster X33 Mars timer, so we were all a little bit right in what we what we predicted this release would be. I have to say, hand and heart, I love this watch. I think this is epic. Uh, I've always been a fan of the X33 and other than it still being a pathetic 30 meters water resistant but yeah I particularly appreciate this I particularly appreciate the fact that the bezel looks like it's made of teak it has that kind of racing yacht theme going on at the same time as being designed for space I think it's interesting that it's ESA certified rather than NASA certified have any of you actually seen this watch yet? I've just seen it on the website. <laughs> Ariel, David, you've not seen this in a in a dark, darkened room somewhere under security? Not yet. Not yet. Uh, I will see it soon. I, I do know that, especially on the bezel there, 
oftentimes when Omega does their editing, they enhance textures a lot. So my suspicion is just going to look kind of like a brown, you know, Martian soil dial or Uh bezel. I don't think you're going to see that much texture there. Look, I think everyone has a soft spot for the X33. It's hard to be a modern watch guy and not have some interest in the X33. Maybe you've owned one. And for a long time, it was really cool. It was, you know, it was the modern Speedmasters, the one that had that functionality that was more advanced, more precise. You know, you'd actually wear it. I think the problem is, is that other watches have come that have made something like the X33 more a design proposition as opposed to a class leading product. It was supposed to be like you spent a lot of money for high end quartz and yeah, it was a lot, but you really got a class leading product. We know that pretty soon Breitling is probably going to come out with a new aerospace. They've been sort of hinting at that for a while and it hasn't been released yet. We know that those are much thinner and, you know, when it was competing head to head in the 90s with the X33, you know, I think maybe the X33 had a little bit more on it. But now I think maybe the uh, the new aerospace might give it a run for its money. So what you have with the Mars watch is a lot of story, a lot of, you know, communication, marketing and stuff like that. But as a tool, I'm not sure that it's as class leading as people sort of want it to be. So it is very good. And they updated the movement with a couple of new features and stuff like that. I would like to know from uh, from a, from a community standpoint if they see this as a class leading product or it's just sort of a cool, pretty high end quartz watch. I, I I'd really like to know what the thoughts are. I mean, if I had a niche for watch collecting, it would be Digiani watches. That's where I would like to have my niche. Should I be able to afford all the Digiani watches that I would like? It's a cool niche. And so I think that this is definitely contributes. It definitely brings the X33 back into focus. But as you say, I think the Breitling probably has this beaten hands down, both in terms of marketing and community knowledge and kind of general watch person you know not even watch people just folk know things like the brightling emergency and the aerospace folk recognize that you see them about you still see lots of people wearing them pilots especially whereas i think the x33 is just tucked away there i mean i've never been in an omega boutique that's had an x33 in display i think that when i was in the brightling boutique last monday i think there was four aerospaces of various varieties so it's just more front and center from Brighton as Omega. Maybe this will be Omega bringing this a bit more front and center, which I would really like to see. But I'd really like to understand what it is that Omega have against water resistance in their watches in comparison to everybody else. It just makes is you know, it just makes no sense. Last week, David, we're speaking about a six thousand meter dive watch. It's not like Omega don't know how to do it. I, I can explain it. Go it's on, very then. simple. One of the value of these watches is the alarms they have. Uh And in order for the alarms to be loud enough, they have to be able to sort of have less buffer and and the speakers have to emit. So if you look at this watch on the back, it's got these openings around the case back. And that's actually for the alarm sound to go out. So the idea is that in a loud cockpit or in, you know, inside of a space fish. It's actually quite loud. It's a very loud environment. There's fans going and stuff like that. People, the astronauts constantly need to be reminded of various tasks and things like that. So they actually rely on these various alarms. And, and, and what they have said to Omega 
and others is please make it loud enough for us to hear. So in space, no one can hear you scream, but they can hear your Omega X33. Yes. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. What were the details on the solar compass? How did I, I, I didn't look too much into this. How does this thing work? There's not a lot of information about it. I've not seen too much about the details of what it does and how it does it. For example, just how it tells the time on Mars. Like, does it use a Mars clock or does it use an Earth clock? split into mars time which i suspect is what it does it doesn't like say that a minute is longer on mars based on that you split the calendar up into however many times it takes to rotate etc etc what it does it takes an earth minute and interprets it for how long it lasts on mars i assume or you know how many minutes you get in a day based on the rotation rotation of mars I don't know how the solar compass works so no i cannot answer that i don't know if anybody can it's presumably on the website somewhere. I, I mean, look, these are things that we'll answer as we get hands on with it. But this is sort of, um, you know, none of us are like super as excited as we might be. Because clearly, this is a highly technical product that Omega released in a very non-technical way. So each of us mm-hmm. is accustomed to brands really giving us a, a, a thorough explanation, new materials, new complications. I mean, David knows this, even for simple things. They'd go like out of their way to make sure we understand it. Here, there's like, oh, there's a new movement, an electronic movement with a bunch of stuff. How's it work? Yeah, yeah, we'll figure it out later. And that's that's kind of weird. I mean, so bear in mind that in Scotland, solar time is probably not that relevant for for lots of reasons. But yeah, I mean, Mars Day is 38, 39 minutes longer than an Earth Day. So I, I don't know how it represents that. It just gives you an extra 39 minutes on the watch uh, or whether it, it relates it back to the length of a second. But uh, yeah, I'm sure that the Omega website probably has that information if you really delve deep. But as you say, Ariel, it's probably not the most obvious. It's probably more, here's some pretty pictures. Here's a price. Do you want one? Yeah, I think Omega just got used to always, uh, you know, receiving a lot of hype around the Speedmaster and around its products. And they thought, they might have thought that, oh, okay, we, we'll release a teaser and then everyone will go crazy and then we'll drop the watch and then see what happens. But, you know, uh, I was just looking at the comments on, on Omega's Instagram uh, just to see what the vibe was over there. And uh, yeah, people were kind of confused by this. And, and clearly, it's exactly what you guys just said. They would have needed and required a little bit more of an explanation and, uh, you know, just bringing them closer to what this watch is and what it does and why it even exists today and why it's themed with Mars, uh, especially after the uh, Moon's Watch fiasco, I should say, from Omega's perspective, where this kind of gives off uh, the vibe of a very expensive moon swatch you know like here's another planet and it's themed like that and it's quartz and people were like okay but <laughs> you know that's a lot like what we've been seeing you know since march from another brand you know at like 200 dollars. so so yeah um it, it, it put omega in, into um, uh, a peculiar uh, position for sure we recently covered a slew of Shinola watches that are mechanical, and we've been talking about how Shinola has been returning to some or starting to do some mechanical stuff. The brand was never really about that, even though they've had a few. This watch is the mechanic, and it wasn't written by me. It was written by Sean. Um, I did see these watches when, when we met with Shinola several months ago at the Couture Show in Las Vegas, and these sort of have a, um, a little bit of a cushion-style case, sort of panorized style with a little bit of changes, you know, fun colors, very classic 
looking. These, I believe, have a, a manually wound movement in there. It's 39 millimeters wide in steel. Sapphire crystal. I think what we're starting to see is a little bit of a resurgence of the sort of mainstream American you know, luxury mechanical watch. The funny thing is the company that was in the best position to do stuff like this a few years ago, I think was Movado that really missed its um, opportunity to get into a market like this. They could have, I don't think they did for a lot of reasons. And so when I look at what Shinola is trying to do with these, this has a uh, $1,450 price point. I'm thinking like this is sort of something that a company like Movado probably should have done. What Zodiac does is similar but a little bit different because Zodiac is essentially a Swiss brand owned by Americans. You know, Shinola is an American brand you know, owned by Americans. And I, I think that there's so much opportunity for them. And, they, and they're finally at that point where they can get into mechanical watch and not just have uh, the quartz stuff. I think for a lot of watch collectors, when we've seen Shinola until recently, it's been, yeah, yeah, those have some nice designs, but it's just, it's lower end than what I would wear. And it's actually pretty high price point. So I don't feel there's like a huge value there. And I think Shinola was aiming for more of a mainstream consumer. So they didn't really have, you know, people like us in mind. With products like this, they're starting to more. I think the mainstream is still who they hope to sell to, but they're definitely wanting the enthusiast seal of approval and enough of us to be like, yeah, that's maybe it doesn't per se have me in mind, but it's made to my standards. It has things I like. You know, I think that the the movement here is a great example. It's, you know, not a complicated movement, just a basic, you know, two-hand manual around, but it's got a a, a nearly black colored uh, movement. They really focus on the visibility, looking nice. And this is this is actually pretty well done. So it's, I think, the first of a lot more things uh, to come. And I, I, again, the enduring advice I have is if you've known about Shinola, but sort of written them off a while ago, it's sort of time to put them back on your radar and, and, and check out what they're going to do next. Yeah. I mean, it very much reminded me when I first saw these ones, I was like, this reminds me of a fears. I can see the Panerai element of it as well, but this reminds me very much of the kind of fears Brunswick. Uh, type shape only a lot a lot cheaper and the colors the colors and of the course. colors so yeah it, it certainly is them stepping up their game into the enthusiast community it's from my point of view it's far too small and it'd be really nice to see them make these sort of in panerai type sizes i think cushion cases when they're small can look really small again that might just be because i'm used to wearing a panerai so when i see something that's panerai shape it just doesn't look right Although perhaps it, it is absolutely fine. Quite like the straps in these. There's been quite a lot of design thought put into it. It's not the sort of thing I'm going to buy, but I can see where they're going, which I think is what you're trying to see, Ariel, which is, yeah, somebody in Shinola is now paying attention to us as a community rather than just looking to sell as much as possible, as cheaply as possible. Cam, these are probably more as somebody from the continental United States. Does this hold any attraction, the idea of it being an American watch? Um, no, the, the, the idea of a, an, like an American watch, uh, I mean, I find that with, with a lot of this, is it, it, like it's, it's, it, uh, the marketing speak behind of where it's from and that sort of thing kind of gets lost in the shuffle with me now. So, but I, I mean, from, from the design aesthetic, I like, yeah, the first thing that jumped to my mind was, was, was a fears as well with an autodromo strap. Mm, yes. 
this strikes me a lot more than a, anything else they've done in the past. Uh, Chanel has never really been on my radar uh, personally. I mean, it, it, when we're talking about this type of price bracket and range and stuff, when, whenever I'm thinking Chanel, I always, I always kind of would go, you know what? I'd spend probably spend a bit more money and go with like a Weiss if I was if I was going to go with the American brand theme because I, I really like the stuff that Cameron Weiss has produced over the years and I, th- I thought he built it. But this is, I think. This particular Shinola is definitely stepping into a category where it it, it, it interests me. Because you t- yeah, you turned around the case back on this thing's fantastic. It's a very striking movement the way they've they've managed to like they've got uh, the the black plate on the back and and everything and the gearing stuff. It looks I, I'd really like to see it in the metal to be honest before I actually properly tr- uh, pass judgment. But yeah, it, it's interesting. Question for you all. Ironically, I have a podcast interview, the superlative podcast interview later this week with the gentleman who is the creative director and is managing all this type of stuff. What do you think I should ask him that you'd be interested in or what feedback do you think I should give him just uh, as because it seems highly relevant to what we're talking about right now? I think it would be interesting to know as to whether their intention is to stick in this price lane or whether this is the start of a process that over the next three to five years, it's, you know, this is $1,800 or whatever, and then three to five years from now, they're going to be trying to sell watches at four and a half, five thousand dollars $5,000. You know, are they trying to grow the brand by growing the number of people interested in it and buying it, or are they trying to grow the revenue by making stuff more and more interesting? Because a lot of these creative directors, I think, get bored after a while. They want to do the cool stuff, and the only way to do the really cool stuff is to charge more money for it. So I'd be interested to know if he's got a vision as to as to where they're going to go. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, and I, I would like to see if they're going to um, continue in the path of, of going through, uh, like with mechanical pieces, and, and extending beyond just doing a, a three-hand. Like, would they be would they get into doing, like, like go into, like, a GMT or a chronograph or something like that? Because they have had, and I, and I think you spoke to this earlier, Ariel, is the fact that their, their designs have been cool in the past. Like, they've got... There's been a really, it's always had an interesting design aesthetic, but it does, it always did land kind of in that price point where you kind of go, ah, it's a, it's a quartz or a mecha quartz and stuff like that. And you go, ah, there's, there's a lot of comparable stuff out there for the same money. So that I may like the design aesthetic more, more than with, uh, with a brand name that may have a bit more cachet, just being from a snobbish type background with all of this stuff now. But I, I would like to see like if they're if they're continuing on this path, I, I think I think they've got potential because I, I really do like the design that they've come up with this. I think it looks great. Question, I know you know the answer to this. Whatever happened to the company that was set up to make an American watch movement? Is that still a thing? Yeah, it's the one in uh, Arizona. Honestly, I can't remember. I just remember there was a, a lot of media around maybe three years ago and it was all, yeah, we are setting up this factory to make an American watch movement, but it's not something I've heard mentioned very often since. Yeah, it started as, and I don't think it's gone too far past the initial phase, but the idea was to be an American assembly place, right? They couldn't make their own movements yet, but they would buy the parts and they would assemble here and you could at very least have an American assembled movement and that over time you could replace parts that you purchased from overseas with stuff made in America and you'd start with the easy ones like, oh, this this big plate over here, well, we could easily machine that and then over time, you have to buy less and less parts. And that's sort of the goal. I don't know how much they've been able to produce in America. I think that, of course, like many companies, the pandemic just put all yeah. this stuff upside down. So I have seen their name from time to time. I do know that they're still uh, kicking along and, and doing their stuff. But I don't think that they are at the position they want to be where they can start to say this and this and that is, is now made in America. 
final watch review for this week very quickly is an article that Ariel has done. This is the Hotlands Linear Series 1 Tour Gear Watch. Now, these guys are now owned by Moser. Is that correct? Or have I made that up? It's been that way for a while, but yes. Yeah. And I've seen this occasionally, but you've obviously got a hands-on with this. It's a pretty funky, cool-looking watch. Costs a fortune, I expect. But was it nice to actually wear and use? Did it feel in any... You know, did it actually give off a, a feeling of horology rather than toy watch? Well, it's nothing like the original Holtlands watches. And I had the opportunity to get to know most of them when they when they came out. So it's a completely different product for a new generation. Uh, the price is about $65,000. So it's it's not as high as maybe they once were uh, or, or all the watches, but you know, this is a tourbillon with the sort of linear I guess it's a jumping hour indicator for the most part, linear jumping out indicator, traditional circular minute indicator you know, TV screen style case, you know, good quality. It's a fun watch. But again, it's it doesn't look like other than some of the design language, anything from the original stock was in there. What we have is hopefully a return to sort of what Moser was trying to do in the past, which was Moser was going to be the sort of traditional facing arm and Holtlance was going to be like the modern side. So kind of like, you know, at MBNF, there's like the horological machines and the legacy machines. They were kind of doing that for a little while. Now, H. Moser and C has its modern-ish watches, you know, Streamliner and things like that, the, the Pioneer. So it has modern-ish things and incorporated that. Now that Holance is back, I think what they're going for is just small productions, weird, quirky, just sort of another flavor. Uh, and I really do think they're going to try to go on the sort of avant-garde modern design, whereas a lot of the H. Moser and C pieces, just by definition, have to stay a little bit more classic. It's strange because it's not it's not positioned as like class innovating. It's very much a design product. It's definitely high end without trying to be up there. It's it's a design product, so it doesn't have technical features that'll make you know like watch movement nerds be like, oh, this has never been done before. It's cool to look at and it's well made, but I guess sort of mechanical sculpture art, you know, for the type of people that that want something like that. And there is a market out there for it, but this is, you know, this very similar to when I first got in the watch industry. You had a lot of these very niche brands, and it was wonderful to imagine who out there is wearing this because you know they're out there. People are buying it, but the chances of you seeing some of this on the street are just like infinitesimally small. I did wonder whether this was Moser's move, as you suggest, into the kind of Richard Mille territory, a little brand that they can just do what they like with. And I think my query was, is it going to end up being more Richard Mille-like or more Seven Friday-like? You know, they're going to have to tread a very careful line. You know, Richard Mille looks like it should. Well, does it look like It's not that it looks like it should be cheap. It actually, looks expensive, but you kind of look at the design and go, that could equally be a cheap watch, but you can tell that it's not. And I think there's a fine line to be tread between producing something that you charge a lot of money for that looks like it really shouldn't be charged a lot of money for. I don't know. That's it's a bit of a confusing thing, really, and I think this is a bit confusing. I it mean, is, it's cool. it is. Look, think think of it more like Angelus. I mentioned Angelus in the article, and that is a better example. There, you know, you have Le Jeu Perret, which is owned by Citizen, but within Le Jeu Perret is Arnold and Son and Angelus. These are two, you know, in-house brands. Arnold and Son is very much the 
traditional facing side angelus to sort of weird modern things this is actually priced relatively similar to a lot of the angelus watches and so i think that's the model it's supposed to be very boutique it's not supposed to necessarily go down in price or go up in price it's just there to be another area to play with design remember these people are manufacturers and they tend to feel very constrained by the fact that H. Moser can only make certain things. Sometimes they're like, well, what if we want to make this crazy thing? Well, that's not Moser. So they like having these other things kind of as playgrounds from time to time. And that can be very satisfying for them. And if it's cool and weird enough, it will sell. So it's never going to be a big volume play. They're not going to be like selling the brand. I think of it more as them coming back with a, a creative opportunity that allows them to be artistic, a little bit funky. And and we know, I mean, funky is like a word that H. Moser with the Melons, they like to use that word all the time. So yes. this is part of their, their funkiness. Good, good. Well, go and check out the article and tell us what you think of the uh, new watch of Watchlands. Good, that is us for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, David, you probably have to jump off this call very quickly, so why don't you tell us what you're up to first and where folk can find you on the internet? Yeah, people can find me at abtw underscore David and abtw David also <laughs> for the amazing and wonderful and touching fan account. We're not giving you access to that account. No, no, oh no, my no. goodness! You, you don't, you don't get to use it. That, <laughs> so I guess this means that I can get the little blue tick finally yeah, to say that uh, my uh, my account is the official ABTW account. <laughs> that's funny. Okay, that's right. <laughs> yeah, Good so that's stuff. cool. Um, I'm finishing up an article on five things that are better and worse about the Rolex Daytona that you might not have thought to be the case. So anyway, that's going to be a big one. And I'm doing photography for that today. It's uh, two and a half thousand words are over. And uh, I look forward to the comments on that for sure. Good, good. Cameron, where can we find you on the internet and what's happening with the, the Tri Watches podcast? Uh, well, you can find me. I'm the one of the three members of the Tri Watches podcast. Uh, you can look that up pretty much uh, anywhere you get podcasts. Um, we're also on Instagram under Tri Watches as well. Beyond that, uh, I have my personal account, which is linked through that as well. So, um, uh, and then, yeah, other than that, I don't, I don't do a lot of watch stuff related on the internet other than uh, consume so yeah good stuff and if uh, you happen to be a Frenchman that has is slightly more reliable than the Frenchman that Cameron has on <laughs> then feel free to apply for the job of Thomas uh, good stuff and uh, Ariel what are you up to this week well I have an interesting event that I'm going to be going to this weekend it's going to be the the next edition of the Luftgekult which is Patrick Long's uh, air-cooled Porsche event which is quite popular and now sponsored by Chopard. So we did a podcast on Superlative, Patrick and I together, that was kind of cool. He used to be a race car driver, really cool guy, loves watches. And this has become like a real lifestyle event for watch people. It's it's it, it, it's a cool thing uh, uh, to go to. So I'm excited about that. And before that, we're going to be doing a, a dinner with Hublot. Uh, they're going to be coming out with a new Lib Edition watch with the, uh, Shepard Ferry. I think it's the second one that's going to be here in L.A. So that's going to be fun. So this month and next month especially, there's just a lot of stuff going on. Good stuff. And you can find me at RecTechTalk and you can email the show podcast at blogtowatch.com. So thank you for joining us, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Cameron, for coming on. And Ariel, Dave is already away. So goodbye. Goodbye. Okay. Bye, Bye everyone. Thanks very much.